Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. From Pee-wee to Dumbo and everything in between, join us every Thursday in April for Filmography Tim Burton. Our five-part season will break down all 19 of Burton's feature-length films to date in detail. Follow Filmography on Spotify or wherever else you find your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. There is a podcast that is a world unto itself. A podcast as boundless as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the place between light and shadow. Science, Science and, and superstition. superstition. It lies between the pit of humankind's fears and the summit of our knowledge. No, your ears don't deceive you. You're, You're not, not imagining, imagining things. This is that podcast. You've entered the, the fifth dimension. dimension. Greetings, travelers. I'm your host, Michael Rothman, editor-in-chief of Consequences Sound and also a constant contributor of the Losers Club and Halloweenies here on the Consequence Podcast Network. We're here to talk about episode three of Jordan Peele's The Twilight Zone, titled Replay, written by Selwyn Sefew Hines and directed by Gerard McMurray. But I'm not alone here in the fifth dimension. I'm here with some co-hosts, and I'm going to start off by pointing to one right now. To none other than Matt Mellis, the editorial director of Consequence of Sound, and currently single and looking. Oh, wow. <laughs> you're, in the, you're in the fifth dimension. I hear, uh, I, I hear well, Tinder's uh, quite extraordinary. Any, on, any on... kind life form will do. <laughs> great. great. Well, there'll be plenty of doors to knock here in uh, fifth dimension. This is Sammy Kuykendall, a constant contributor to this podcast, as well as the person who runs most of CPN's social media networks, which just basically means I'm really good at finding memes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I would say so. Yeah, it's one of my all many those, All those Twilight Zone memes that uh, have been pretty fun. Well, thank you. <laughs> We're also not alone here. Uh... Um, that's me, Eleanor Edwards, which means I'm probably related to enigmatic podcast host Roderick Edwards from Nightmare at 30,000 Feet. Ooh. <laughs> oh, that is creepy. <laughs> yeah. And Do you know the future? <laughs> uh, maybe. I actually I had a really Twilight zone experience today, which is that when I left my car for work today... I turned off the radio while it was playing Golden Earrings Twilight Zone. Oh. Mm. And then when I got back in the car to go home, I turned on the radio and it was the same song. Oh, my God. That is creepy. Almost like history's repeating itself. I don't know. But I'm not alone here either because I'm joined by... Oral Fryer. Hi, everyone. Everyone has such, like awesome handles and titles but hi my name is Oral Fryer and I manage a comic book store in Central Florida and I'm also on a podcast known as Flame On it's a gay nerdy podcast on the Nerdy Show Network right? it is it is on the awesome. Nerdy Show Network which is also run by our CPN director Cap Blackard who you might have heard on a bunch of podcasts here on the Consequence Podcast Network and you hear her voice every time we start one of these episodes <laughs> so Oral what's your relationship to the Twilight Zone I love anthology series. 
I have watched The Twilight Zone ever since I was a, a little child. When sci-fi became like a network in the mid to late 90s, I was that kid who like I knew Twilight Zone comes on Tuesdays. Up, oh, can't miss Dark Shadows. So like I'm totally stoked about this. <laughs> We've assembled again after a very long week (laughs) where we did like a marathon three episodes. That was pretty intense. Very happy that we can just kind of settle down a little bit more with this episode. But let's get in into replay uh, and uh, we'll start off with the synopsis. Here's where we cue the disconcerting music that only I can hear in my head when I read these each week. (laughs) Nina is driving her only son, Dorian, off to college for the first time, but a highway patrolman seems hell-bent on preventing their arrival. Nina finds that the only thing that can protect her son is her camcorder, which seems to have the power to rewind time. But can Nina come to terms with the past and time to save her son's future? We're going to be starting off by discussing the stars and souls. You walk into this room at your own risk, because it leads to the future. Not a future that will be, but one that might be. This is not a new world. It is simply an extension of... What began in the old one. In this segment, we like to talk about the stars, the the characters, the the people that we're watching in the Twilight Zone. And Matt, you've already mentioned a couple characters in here. Why don't we start off with the main character herself? Nina, the mother, played by Sana Lathan, who I think was uh, really solid in this. And solid in this in the way that I think we really, really believe um, the relationship she has with um, her son, Dorian, who she's driving off to college. And we pick up so much about who she is from just how they interact with each other and mm-hmm. some things she drops. I mean, we, we know she's clearly a single mother. We know she's estranged from her family. She's clearly come from a background where some serious things have gone down. She's lost family to violence. But more than that information, we really see, I think, the connection between the mother and son. They're sort of their everything, you know, they're each other's, each other's inspiration, they're pals, they hang out, you know, they'll listen to old school together, then they'll listen to rap music, they'll hang out and sort of have a junk food, a trash reality TV night. So they're very, very tight, they're sort of everything to each other's worlds, and I think you get a sense that she's been preparing Dorian, but she's also sort of been sheltering him, so yeah. she's a protective mother too. And what is she doing? She's trying to get him there safely. Mm -hmm. Well, at first, she's just trying to take him to college for his first day. But ultimately, she finds out after he squirts the ketchup all over himself and she accidentally presses rewind that she has something in her power that will control the rest of the day. But she doesn't. At first, she shakes it off like that was weird. He didn't realize it, Mm -hmm. you know, just kind of almost like a deja vu. Exactly. Definitely feels like that. But then once. She does it the second time after they've been pulled over. She realizes, I now have the power to control this day that just keeps ending in disaster. Yeah, I recognize Sana Latham from Alien vs. Predator. She was in the first Alien vs. Predator. Really solid in that movie, uh, even though it gets batshit crazy towards the end of that movie because she like teams up with the Predator by the end of the movie to fight the aliens, which is kind of wild. There's like a great shot of her running side by side with the Predator. Uh, so I, but she's also been in a shitload of great movies too. Like I, I love, uh, love and basketball. Contagion is probably one of the scariest You're movies I've ever seen. Terrified of Contagion. I'm uh, OCD and uh, definitely um, terrified of germs, which 
I'm very I'm waiting here in the Twilight Zone for an episode that's going to be dealing with that. Anxiously. She was in Blade too. Yeah, yeah, she was in Blade also. So she, she's, she's a, a bit she, of a scream queen. Yeah. Kind so of. this is continuing the trend of the show of having just some really great like stars that are on this rerun of uh, the Twilight Zone. Wait, was she was she in Blade or Blade Two? Because Blade Two doesn't exist. It goes Blade and Blade Three. They're like, what happened to Blade Two? We don't talk about it. <laughs> That's true. I actually no no no. She's in she's in Blade. It's the first Blade. Yeah. Yeah yeah. So I agree. <laughs> I 100% agree. And it's so funny because I think Blade 2 is directed by Guillermo del Toro. And he's a pretty great director. And when it was like night and day in terms of CGI, not to go into too much of a tangent there, but I, I, I love finding anyone who wants to just like, you know, slam Blade 2 because I can't see <laughs> that. I skipped school to go see that movie because I was so excited. And then I remember like walking out being like, oh. My education. You skipped school. You skipped college. The things you skipped to see movies. Yeah. Oh, God. And this is how you ended up here. Yeah. That's the, in the fifth dimension. In the fifth dimension. The fifth dimension. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So who's your son, though? Dorian Harrison, played by Damson Idris. He was in Snowfall, that series on FX. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's, and Snowfall is actually really good. It's kind of a, it's an underrated show because it was played in the summer. So a lot of people can forget about it. But it's solid. He's in an upcoming show, uh, movie called Squadron 42 that I saw today, hmm. which is basically like animated, but they all, it's like a Scanner Darkly with Keanu Reeves. It's it's them, but it's like animation put over it that has like an insane list. Like Mark Hamill is in it. Gary Oldman is in it. So he's like up and coming, you know, he's yeah. done like a couple, I, I believe he's a British actor. And so his career is on the up and up right now. Yeah. He's from a, he's from Peckham, London, England. So 20, yeah. only 27 years old and already in the Twilight Zone. How about that? What a killer career. Longer to get there. Wow. Killer yeah. Great accent, because I didn't realize. <laughs> no, you can't hear it at all. What else happens to these two characters? Because there's a third that really throws a wrench into the mix of things, and uh, to me, probably one of the most terrifying. Uh, oh, he's so scary. That human beings in the world. Officer Lasky is played by Glenn Fleshler, who we recognize from season one of True Detective. That mm. um, he was Errol Childress, the Yellow King, as many people mm. called him. Spoiler so scary. alert! No. Oh, oh, come on! It's been years. Okay. <laughs> it's only been five seen years the first since the first season, season. of True okay. Detective. Okay. Um, where he murders a ton of children. Uh, so he definitely has like a creepy factor to him. He was in Barry as well as like the Russian yes, mob boss. Yes, I forgot he was in Barry. Um, he was also in Boardwalk Empire. Mm-hmm. He was also in uh, Waco, which was like now it used to be Spike TV, but now it's Paramount TV or whatever, the channel, um, which was like a whole series on mm. that cult. So it was, oh. yeah, he's... Um, so they basically chose the best guy. person yeah. <laughs> to be the most terrifying son of a bitch that you could put on film. Why is he terrifying, Eleanor? Why is Officer Lasky one of the, probably one of the scariest uh, figures in the Twilight Zone uh, recent memory? Probably because he's played by someone who's just really upset that he never gets to be a romantic lead. That's probably true, actually. (laughs) Reason enough. No, it's that uh, he has a swagger that kind of looks like he's never been questioned in his life. You get creepy vibes immediately, but you don't know why. And then uh, slowly you realize that he's just extremely racist and he keeps pulling them over every time they try to leave town, every time they try to get from point A to point B to school. He looks like he should just be a normal man. Yeah. You know, like Mm -hmm. there's nothing like he just looks like someone you could see walking down the street anywhere. And yet he has this presence that makes you feel like gives you the uh oh feeling of like this has ill. This man has ill intentions. He kind of reminded me of the cop from Psycho 
a little bit. Um, you know, in Janet, Janet Lee's uh, running uh, from the law from Phoenix and she's going off to and then she inevitably goes to Bates Motel where she has a great night of sleep. And um, <laughs> no, but like in that in, the, in that whole drive, she, you know, she's encountered by a cop. And even the way that he um, Lasky pulls over Nina is very similar to like the way he like knocks on the door and he even does this one thing that's like so creepy that he like caresses the back of the car when he walks up to it or whatever. He's just like such a scumbag. It just he feels that ownership. he feels that powerful or in control that ownership, right? And he just I mean that whether it's the the actor the character but just really on screen strikes me as sort of inhuman, um sort mm-hmm. of soulless like there's not anything going on compassion behind the eyes there's nothing really there and just when he tries to you know when she tries to act like a human being with him humanize him and humanize herself to him it's just the the simplest interactions of you know it seems so difficult for him you know yeah like a terminator that's exactly what we said he's been inoculated by authority and so it disassociates him from the people he interacts with especially of you know like the black community because this entire episode for me like Full disclosure, you know, gay black man, it makes you super uncomfortable. Yeah. Like everything about it. And and Peel has a really great way of really giving you those emotions and not necessarily always working like the the plot out really well. Like the devil's not in the details. It's Mm -hmm. in the in the overall mood. Mm -hmm. And so like when you have those situations with police and, you know, you could be at a diner minding your own business but their their presence is kind of like palpable you feel it in the ether Mm -hmm. and so like no matter where you go no matter what you do you know uh you were talking about caressing the car that car doesn't belong to her in his eyes that car is something in the way of exerting this power over people and that's what we kind of see in in officer lasky and what you see a lot in these news reports where you have, you know, police overreaching, police brutality and enforcement, you you get that sort of disdain, that pressure in the back of your neck that says something awful is going to happen, that sense of existential dread. And that's what he exudes. Oh, totally. And you almost feel as if like he's just especially the way that he shows up to the motel and then eventually is even able to kind of just you just feel like he's always going to just like so much like like a Michael Myers thing where he's just going to keep finding you no matter how far you go. And I think that definitely is embellished by that feeling that you that you just explained. Like it's like that tension is is so wrapped in that character that by the time you meet him and you see him stop him even first on the on the road, that tension and that dread stays with you until the very end, I would argue, almost. I think it's definitely scarier for her, obviously, because for him, this is, every time is the first time he's done it for him. Like, he's, for her, this is the sixth, seventh time that he's followed her in different various ways, you know? So, mm-hmm. like, for him, it's not like he's obsessing over it or he's, because it's just the one time every single time he's just finding new ways to do it because no matter where they go, he will find the way to get there to them. But for her, it's so much scarier because it's like, no matter what I do, you keep, you've tried this so many different times and so many different timelines. Mm-hmm. But for him, he's only tried it the one time. And he also makes that comment where he's just like, oh, I know all of your kind, like almost like the, you know, I know all of you. Like it's as if like, you know, he's tying her to like all of the black population that he's known. And it's, it's, that's, it's like a little subtle line that he says to her. I think when they're eating pie, actually, when she's actually trying mm-hmm. to like disarm him. And that was just such a, it's just a small little line, but it's just, it's so like emblematic of just like his viewpoint 
of how he views like society that's not him. Well, and as much as I liked the son and mother like dialogue and their relationship, I think the relationship, not like, I guess if you could call it a relationship, I think the Nina and Officer Lasky interactions were some of my favorite. And because it was just, it was very realistic as far as I'm sure what it would feel like to try to talk someone out of a situation, like just try to personify yourself. And so I like looked more like forward to those interactions than I did the the son and mother ones because I could feel the tension in those scenes. Mm-hmm. I think looking at um, Officer Lasky as like this, you know, singular instance is kind of limiting in scope because you have to think of it as like a like a closed system because you know is everyone familiar with microaggressions yeah yeah okay so we don't need an explanatory comma so yeah (laughs) well Well, let's explain to listeners (laughs) so um, microaggressions are from the outside looking in seem really like benign interactions with people like oh you know how are you or you know where did you get that car but Mm -hmm. if you have been conditioned to not trust the police in the sense where you only call them in like life or death situations and and you try not to escalate because it could turn something into like a life or death situation you realize that every interaction with someone can be seen as as an uh, aggressive form of like sexism or racism or you know like a like a, a social uh dig right and so these interactions that we see with Lasky independently you know, without the music setting the tone and you see the subtle movements of Nina's like face or her son's reactions, these seem really dramatic. And Lasky always seems really cool because he's always got the upper hand. He's berating them and barraging them with these microaggressions, kind of goading a situation where he is forced to take out his taser multiple times in different iterations Mm -hmm. or timelines. And then finally where he uses deadly force. And like I said, from the outside looking in, these seem really innocuous, but they're not like he has harassed these people. But if this mother said, you know, in this instance, he harassed me X, Y, and Z that a lot of times isn't taken into account because it seems so, so normal. Like why wouldn't you show the officer you know, your license and registration, that pink slip though, that is, that's a, that's a key. Yeah. That's, that's something that seems, oh yeah. Like I would always carry ownership of me owning this car. No, you don't like you actually don't. No, no of course I, I said that same thing. Like right yeah. even before the son said it, I was like, no one carries around their pink slip. Like yeah. nobody does that. I thought it was interesting. Um, at the end you said inoculated by power and that seems like a really good expression for this towards the end when the other cops came in, mm-hmm. I had been sitting there thinking, where are the other cops? Let's get other people in on, on his side, if you will. Because this can't be that rampant. He's just one guy. There have to be checks and balances in his organization that come and check him. But there aren't. And that's exactly what it made me realize was, oh, right. They don't, cops don't get normal trials. They get tried by other cops. So the system really does protect its own and not the rest of the people they should be protecting. Yeah. And that that scene is is really important because... She's trying to get her son to college and, you know, he's going to walk through those gates. But the thing about it is, is that when you face systemic oppression, whether it be law enforcement, whether it be in housing, even though there are laws and statutes and acts that protect, you still have things like HUD that investigate these issues. And you think, oh, well, you know, 
when you remove yourself from violence, when you get an education and you have a stable income, all of these things will allow you to rise above your station. And you see that in the subtle way the episode ends, even though it's kind of blatant. You you kind of feel that when he walks through the college and he has the community behind him, none of that matters. None of that will matter, you know, 10, 15 years from now when you have another situation and you're faced with another officer Lasky. But it's not like it's it is indicative of a system that has failed. But we prop it up because we think we have nothing better. The timeline you see it the most that we have a system that's failed is when he thinks that his mother is having like a heart attack or a panic attack or something. And he sees the police officer and immediately is like, please take us to a hospital. And immediately the police officer turns it around to make it seem like they've done something wrong. When you should look at your police force as someone that's going to help you not be afraid. And I think that was the perfect way of showing that. They're afraid. They're not like I would be afraid to ask for help if I thought that my life could be in danger because I'm just in a bad situation. Yeah, I mean, he literally just he goes right to the fact that their car is parked illegally or exactly. something, which is mm-hmm. just ridiculous considering the fact that they're clearly in distress. She's hyperventilating. And, and that's the first instance where you actually get the sense that even though they've it's not the first instance for because he's just you know, just incredibly corrupt even just in the way that they he initially pulls him over. But it's in that situation where you realize that he didn't even see them with like the actual, you know, holding up the, the the camera in the car or anything like that. This is just there. Absolutely. There's just nothing there. And he just immediately goes to just take him down. You realize this guy is he's, he's just always going to be, you know, he sees an opportunity. It. It, yeah. it, that's the one where he didn't have a reason to pull over. So he watched this car that he'd been following for a reason, obviously, pull over and be like, this is my opportunity to create a situation that doesn't need to be created mm-hmm. um, and that's why I thought that of all of the timelines that the, that he pulled them over that one was the scariest to me because it goes down to that feeling of, of like we should feel safe when we see a police officer <laughs> exactly but we don't uh, I mean I'm from um, South Florida and I would have to do the drives around like uh, you know Tallahassee and there have been so many times when I would get pulled over by a lot of the the sort of like quote unquote Bible uh, Bible Belt cops that would just give me shit because I had long hair and a Jewish last name, and they'd always just you know mock me for being like, oh, where are you going off to now? Or like, I'd be like, well, I'm going back to college. And he's like, oh, we got a college boy here, and it's just like, like, all right, yeah, I get it, I sped, but like, there's there's this this sort of condescension that I, I don't know. I've just I've definitely always been sort of antagonistic towards cops in a way, just because I can't. They just there's just reminding me of the sense that like they, there's I feel just very questionable to anyone who has authority because I feel like anyone's going like authority in general is people are just going to be corrupted by it no matter what. And like, it doesn't, it takes a narcissistic personality, I think to be in a, like to want to be a cop. I like not, not always and not Mm. always, but like, I definitely think there are times when it's like that power would go to your head. You would feel very pompous at times because you're the one with the weapon, which isn't to say like, if you are listening and (laughs) there is someone breaking into your house, absolutely call the cops. Like, Oh yeah. Yes. (laughs) I know people in law enforcement, they are, you know, like kind, generous people. They collect toys for people in, in foster care, kids in foster care. There are people out there doing what they can to make the world safer. Yeah. The the Mm -hmm. problem with that is that those checks and balances that should exist do not exist. And if they do, they do not exist 
equally for everyone across the board. That's the problem, you know, and she, when you first meet the protagonist, she is a strong, confident woman who is taking her lovely son, you know, to college. You, you, you feel that power, but that power is instantly stripped away when she's met with a force that can incarcerate her for a little to no provocation that literally holds not only her life, but her son's life in her hand. I, growing up, was told by my mother, is like, you know, if I'm really strict, it's because I love you. If I don't get you to conform to my rules, what do you think is going to happen out in the street? And I was raised by a, a single mother, like super awesome. Childhood was great. There is this a sense of, of fear. Like you, you hear it in her voice when she, you know, she asked me once, I was like, oh, you know, good morning, honey. Like, how are you? I'm like, I'm good, mom. I'm just, I'm walking to work. She's like, what do you mean you're walking to work? You know, I, I walk in my car to go to work. And she goes, it's, it's 630 in the morning. And, and I'm like, yeah. She's like, is there anybody around? And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, it's 630 <laughs> in the morning. I'm 19 years old going to college. No one is up. Everyone is still like passed out. <laughs> and she goes, well, well, maybe I should get you like some pepper spray or, you know, like you should park closer to campus. So I'm like, I, I can't do that. One. She's like, you know, are, are you sure? I really don't want you walking. And I, I, I have to explain to her, like, mom, like I'm a black man walking in Winter Park. Mace is my demographic. Like, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> and they even have a conversation like that. Like yeah. you and your mom in the car. When they first get pulled over, she turns to her son is like, remember what we've talked about. Like, be polite and, you know, and don't give any sass, basically. Sure. And so... For you to say that just goes to show that that's a very real portrait of a mother and son situation where like that topic needs to be breached. Like she's had to teach her son not to trust law enforcement or, or anyone really, you know. So uh, that's that's where I correlates. go back to the idea that she's clearly tried to shelter him in some ways, but she's also prepared him for the realities that are out there. And you know, Sammy said, ideally, a police person should be a helper, you know, to you. Um, and Oral had to laugh a little bit. That I mean, in my case, that's how I was taught to think of police officers. And I think it could be very difficult for a lot of people, uh, white people like myself, to get into that space and completely understand that because it's so different from our own life experiences. And I think that's one of the things that this, this is a, this is a, I think in many ways, and we'll get to a messy episode for me, but I think one thing it does get to in that first half is it does help, I think, someone maybe from my background a little bit get into those sort of feelings of how if you come into a situation like this, there can be that fear and tension. There can be that sense of anger and injustice. There can be that feeling of helplessness or powerlessness. And I mean, I think that really does come across. And it's it's even said very bluntly, there's always something out there coming for us. There's always something that we have to be wary of, you know, whenever we step outside our door. And then, of course, that feeling that we're powerless, we can't change it, no matter how we try to behave, no matter what route going down the road we take. And of course, I mean, you could extrapolate every, almost everything into this, every, almost every person, everything into this, into a much bigger conversation. Obviously, it can sort of stand in for that. But I really do think if you are watching this and you grew up with a very different feeling about the police than, say, Nina, or Dorian did, it does help you get a little bit closer to understanding why uh, this is such an issue. As a white lady, I call the police all the time just for fun. <laughs> if Publix is out of your very special bluebell <laughs> ice cream. 
That's the worst. It's an emergency. We had a lot of discussions about this in the office for sure, especially when we were talking about um, Black Klansman that came out last year, in which at the end, Spike Lee basically makes the argument that, you know, you can't go immediately and just write off all, all cops yeah, for the sure. most part, you know, and it's just an argument that I agree with. And a lot of people really kind of and, went nuts with if that. If I can jump in real quick to that point, Michael. Yeah. I do, although we do have that final scene where the cops show up to back Lapsky, they're not willing to go, I think, to the length that he is. Yeah. There's something additional going on with Lapsky, and I think we'll get to that. But again, there's a systemic issue for sure. Yeah, oh, but I, I think there's something agree. extra going on with him. Mm-hmm. And then again, that idea you can't paint everyone with the same brush. Well, well, it's just like what Oral had been mentioning is that there is no checks and balances. And I don't know where the solution is in that. I mean, obviously, we don't have to go into that on this uh, episode about the Twilight Zone. But <laughs> I I do think that that's one of the, the core problems. But again, like, I mean, also think that the there are checks and balances that are just absolutely obsolete in this country right now in general, just because of the moron that we have running our country. But um, you don't need to go down that road because we've had many <laughs> negative reviews on the Losers Club by talking about pig fucking chief. But um, anyway, we, there's one more character that we haven't brought up. And I think he's an important character. And I think we and actually is one of my uh, favorite TV actors, to be honest with you. But I was pretty stoked to see him. Yeah. Uncle Neil. So I'm a huge fan of Steve Harris. Uh, he's been in uh, he was in one of my favorite canceled shows of all time, which is Awake. Um, and he plays uh, the partner of uh, Jason Isaacs. And it's this amazing, amazing show that's actually not too dissimilar from this episode in the sense that when Jason Isaac uh, goes to sleep, he wakes up in another life. And then when he goes to sleep another, he goes back into another life. And then one of, it was just very similar in the sense that he he plays, he, he does actually end up being in a, Steve Harris tends to, has, he's been in a bunch of um, sci-fi for the most part. So I was really stoked to see him in this and kind of wish that he had a bigger role in this, to be honest with you. But mm. what do we learn from the uncle? I mean, he had a lot to do and not a lot of time to do it. Exactly. Yeah. Think, well, and we'll come back problem. to that. Neil is the connection to Nina's past, which she has run away from instead of contending with. She's He's also an example of um, the solidarity that um, she sort of left behind. And I think another thing that comes out, I mean, Again, sometimes, I mean, there's there's some great moments in the writing here where something's revealed, and I'll talk about one later, I'm sure, but there's some great moments where in the writing where something's revealed just so subtly, and then there's a lot of times where it's just kind of you're hammered over the head with the fact, but, you know, Dorian comes right out and says, you know, do you think it's fucked me up a little bit? He doesn't say fuck, you know, but do you think it's messed me up a little bit that I have not had connection to my family, you know, has it messed me up as an American um, black man? And that's is a very serious issue and something that we could talk about. But Neil is sort of, he comes in and he becomes that connection for Dorian and for Nina. He's that connection to their past. Mm -hmm. Well, there's something that's introduced here that I, that, and granted, this is so so hard about having it all sectionized because I want to talk about things right now. So I'm just going to talk about it. The idea of the camera, we've talked about uh, devices in the Twilight Zone for the last two episodes, last three episodes, actually, because we did the introductory one. But well, the camera's a character, so I'll give you this. Well, the character is, yeah, we'll say, you know, I, I, I do like that camera. More technology, um, too, by the way. Yeah, well, so, it, in a way. but yeah. either way, like, the, I feel like the camera shifts, like, gears in terms of what it represents, at least when you actually meet the uncle, because, you know, he, he, di- he discusses, uh, you know, things of gentrification. He mm. discusses the, uh, the idea of history um, being washed away, and you could see it in his house. His house is just a wash in, in just 
just so much rich history and he's got you know so much literature that's surrounded by him he's got the posters if you have the black lives he matter has to play that he's, role of the expert and the local historian and the yeah connection to the black community there again this actor is playing a lot well he's, I, he's, a lot. he's and that's one of my my problems with it too because it just it kind of really does shift gears for this episode and in, in terms of like what it's trying to say in a, in a sort of way but like at that point i feel like the camera in terms of it being this this source of of power it turns almost just like this source of like history in a way because mm-hmm. what she's capturing kind of it almost just feels like as the camera becomes this like like metaphorical parallel to like what he's discussing with like gentrification and like the, the neighborhood changing and all that history in the past. But I don't know. What did you, what did you all think in, about that? In some ways I felt like it kind of shifted from something that to her documented things in the past that were out of her control, troubling things. It kind of shifted actually by that final scene, something that could be used sort of as a tool of liberation. Mm-hmm. And we see all those cameras. Come yeah. Up. So it yeah. kind of, you know, they, they kind of, she never really, as much as we say she has a power, right? Cause she could undo things. She undoes terrible things that happen to her, but something worse is always about to happen. Right. Finally, at the end, we see at least temporarily the ability for that, um, for cameras in general to become, and we see it in our society. Obviously everyone films everything. It's a way to, um, protect ourselves. It becomes a weapon, you know, of justice in a way. Yeah. It's like, it- the camera becomes the mace, essentially, because uh, it shows that if we don't have these iPhones, like people who shit on technology and everyone filming everything is if we didn't have these cameras at our disposal at all times, things that we've seen in the news in the last couple of years, we would have never seen. So without this technology, people will continue to get away with things because it's not being seen by the vast majority of the public. Well, I, I want to go back to the uncle, though, for a second, though, mm-hmm. because, it, it, you know, there's a lot that goes on with him. And he eventually is the conduit to get them to Tennyson, the university, Yeah. with what was with a tunnel. His underground railroad. Yeah. Basically, yeah. yeah was it too it much? Or? It, yeah. <laughs> it was a lot. It just felt like rushed. It took them two minutes to get to the college, which I understand <laughs> they didn't have a lot of time left, but then introduce him earlier in the episode to make it feel like it took them a second to like you're, you're telling me that they had a underground alley straight from his house to Tennyson. It just it didn't make any sense at all to me well i mean it's again look we're in the twilight zone people, i know so, um let's everything but can... what makes the twilight zone so fun is that it, they try to make it real realistic for us so that you can insert yourself in the situation and yes there were a lot of things that were realistic in the episode but that for me just felt really rushed and not done the way it could have been done well, I, I just felt like in terms of pacing it was as if you had this really tight-knit cat mouse thing that was just rich with like thematic value and Granted, the last third... The third act, everyone knows it's rushed. For sure. You know, Uncle Neil is the the anchor in the community. He's, like you said, fighting gentrification. And, and that's admirable. You know, it. sometimes you... You stay in a neighborhood because, you know, like, it's like why you don't move out of Florida after a terrible election, because you see like things are getting better, but you have to stay and fight. So he mm-hmm. he stayed and, and he fought in a lot mm-hmm. of different ways. And yes, he gets his nephew to college, but everyone is wholly unequipped for that like final scene. Yeah, you have like all of these phones recording Officer Lasky and then his his comrades, but really like their inability to really curb him is is an indictment on all of them. 
And yes, we have all of these phones recording, but you know, we've seen people being gunned down, people like literally lying in the street saying, please don't shoot me and get shot. And we take that in. We realize the injustice, the community kind of bands together to try to like to change, but nothing really happens. Nothing really happens. Those cops who unwarranted pulled out a gun, you know, pointing it at a son, pointing it at this mother, pointing it at the uncle. He literally just gets in his car and goes away. He continues on his day. I can kind of let the third act go because it really doesn't matter. Because when we get to that final point, her worst fear is every, you know, mother's worst fear. And every, like, minority mother's worst fear is that, you know, their child out of sight, out of their sphere of protection is defenseless. But the, mm-hmm. the sad part is they're all defenseless. Yeah. I agree totally. But I do wonder if things are changing at all. And it kind of takes me back to the snail crossing the road that we had mm-hmm. symbolically early on. Yeah. Where at the very least, the ability to document what's happening can change the mind of someone like me who hasn't had, I, I haven't had the experience of feeling threatened by a cop. You know, uncomfortable, sure, but not fearing for my life. But then when you see something like the Philando Castile video and the Freddie Gray story and... Exactly. That's what I was thinking of. Um, Trayvon Martin, obviously, um, which wasn't a cop, but still a white guy who felt he had authority and was eventually acquitted. All of these things are at least reaching the people like me who aren't going to be the worst offenders, but also are oblivious. You know, obviously, we want to move a lot faster than that. But, you know, are things likely to change? Can things change slowly, at least by raising awareness? That's how I viewed, I mean, this episode, one of the positives of it, trying to get people to be able to understand a little bit better, but to even be able to empathize, you know, in addition to sympathize with things. And, you know, that's when, when you can feel with someone else, that hopefully is when something could change and we don't have to worry about 10, 15 years down the line you know, the the sirens flashing when an older Dorian leaves, you know, but um, how many more examples of things do we have to see? How many more pieces of art like a Chirac or this or, you know, what have you? How many more pieces of art have to depict that? Well, and I think that's what the Twilight Zone does best in older episodes. That was the whole point of it being created was so that they could take on political and world events in a sci-fi way. And it just, that's what makes it easier for people to intake things like this and digest them and think about them. And that's why Rod Sterling created the series to begin with, so that he could write these types of stories. Well, that's an interesting point there, Sammy. And I think that's why we should go to our next section, Light in Shadow. We know that a dream can be real. But whoever thought that reality could be a dream? Think about it. And then ask yourself, do you live here in this country, in this world? Or do you live instead in the Twilight Zone? Now, Light and Shadow is a section in which we discuss the parallels to the older episodes and beyond. And that beyond could be literature, whatever parallels you can make. And I think we've made a few of them already, um, especially with this episode, because out of the three, I would say this is probably the most topical one that we've seen so far in this revival. And first off, right off the bat, just the idea of the replay. The titular motif itself is, I think, something that we've seen in a number of television shows, including The Twilight Zone. Um, There was Mm -hmm. uh, one episode 
um, in the past called Shadow Play, uh, which is a great Joy Division song, by the way. Um, and it was uh, season two, episode 26, which uh, basically deals with uh, someone who has to keep on reliving the electrical chair again and again and again and again. And um, mm-hmm. eventually, you know, events change and, and whatnot. But uh, you, Sammy, you had uh, you said that this that that episode itself, and that was also redone in the eighties too. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, as the X Files buff here, uh, it, it like is totally reminiscent of Monday, the X Files episode from season six, episode fourteen. Um, and it was actually directly inspired by that Twilight Zone mm-hmm. episode. It's an episode in which Scully basically has to relive every day Mulder's death at this um, bank robbery scene. So it's just, you know, it's the Groundhog Day effect. But as opposed to it being a funny, comical Bill Murray day, it's like a tragedy that they're having to relive over and over again. And it also reminds me of another episode of Supernatural called Mystery Spot, where Sam has to basically relive the death of Dean, his brother, over and over again. So we've seen this throughout pop culture many, many times. I've seen it in almost any various series that goes on for like more than six or seven seasons, you know, that has like anthology-based episodes, um, even if it is around the same characters. But the the reliving each same day over and over again is definitely something we have seen before. But I... I liked the way that they did this one because it's definitely not so. I, I it's what's going on in the world right now. Yeah, and it's not it's not used to cute effect exactly. And like it's actually kind of used to like a more harrowing effect. And usually, a lot of the times when you get this sort of um, sci-fi uh, trope, it's it's almost like tongue in cheek. Whereas like this sort of there's kind of like a double-edged sword with this. It's that it is a power that she can replay, but she also does, as you know, we were discussing before, there is a powerlessness to it regardless, is the fact that like no matter how time, how many times that you keep going back, it doesn't matter. And that's that's like unnerving. It's And, it's, and I think that's part of the reason why this episode is able to exude that sort of anxiety, um, that so, the social anxiety that we were discussing as well. Eleanor, you mentioned uh, that you kind of liked a lot of the the sort of nods to the past, and there is one nod uh, very early on in this episode. Did you uh, did you happen to see it? I did. I thought you'd be super excited. I was. It's my favorite episode. <laughs> he made us rewind it because I didn't catch it at first, and then he was like, "Did you see that?" And I was like, "No, I, I was like not paying attention. I so, didn't, it was so fast." So what is it, Eleanor? It's the little devil head in the nick of time episode from the genie machine. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And this changed my whole position on the on the props they keep sticking in because I think <laughs> for that it was sort of foreboding that there's no way to escape what's coming after you. Like they have a date with this cop one way or another. Just like in the nick of time, they have to avoid being somewhere or something's going to happen. Yeah, it's like the fate. It's a total fate mm. it's a sort of conundrum. Which, yeah. Which made me rethink the other props, like the dummy yeah. must be about your performance taking over and you know where you draw the lines and what it'll take to get famous. Ooh. Oh, that's awesome. And then the gremlin doll, I think, was a nod to how awful the isolation is when nobody believes you, when, when you think you're crazy and nobody is on your side and you feel totally isolated in your own head. I love all that. I, I, <laughs> I, there, there are a few um, other things that I did not notice upon uh those watches in the first two episodes that i guess there was a reference in nightmare at Thirty Thousand feet to the comedian because in the newsstand you could actually see uh um kumail nanjani's character on on one of the um yeah on and and a lot of the characters were uh, based on characters that were um from those uh, original episodes as well so 
this is filled with Easter eggs. Uh, but in terms of like parallels and, and allusions to, to to reality and pop culture, you'd mentioned Trayvon Martin. Uh, we've also mentioned a multitude of uh, you know films that have come out within the last few years. What what, what are some other uh, parallels you see here? I saw a few more episode ones from other Twilight Zone episodes. Oh, yeah. Not as direct as you know items, but um, one was because of having seen a kind of stopwatch. I was like, oh my god, don't break the camera because once you do that, mm-hmm. there's no going back (laughs) you're screwed you're trapped in it so that's exactly what happens and then the hitchhiker is kind of like the cop where you can't escape him he's coming to get you no matter what like a terminator Mm -hmm. so i got uneasiness from in the same kind of way and then death's head revisited also came to mind because it is so on the nose and actually that's One reason I'd like to restate my position about seeing the news and being exposed to the Black Lives Matter cases that have come to my attention because of the movement that otherwise I was living, you know, without ever noticing, is that my tendency when I first started hearing about these specific cases was to think, well, we don't have all the facts. And that's the tendency that I have because I've never felt like my life was threatened by a cop. And once we started getting videos, we started having proof that actually, no, <laughs> people aren't twisting the story to be for their benefit. This is actually what's happening, that, that people of color are being targeted. And then there's no accountability for the people who do it. So the reason I mentioned Death's Head Revisited is because that is the, that's the episode about the concentration camp where an SS officer goes back to a concentration camp where he used to be mm, yeah. a, a sadist asshole in charge. And he's reliving his glory days. And then the ghosts of the prisoners come and um, <laughs> torture him for the rest of his life or afterlife or whatever it is. But I that was a really on-the-nose episode, just like this one was, where I don't really think it's going to change any minds. Because if you go in thinking Nazis are great or black people aren't targeted, then you're not going to have your mind changed by this episode, I don't think. Not to be a downer. No, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, the button ending right there is is where everything comes back home to kind of hit you uh, just just kind of a punch to the gut. It's like the original ending for Get Out. That, um, and, and I don't want to spoil that one because that movie is still somewhat new. So, um, <laughs> but Yeah, the ending was very Get Out-ish mm-hmm. uh, to me too, now that you mention that. But another thing I'm noticing, and we'll see if it pops up again, is sort of this recurring idea that Jordan Peele has or his writers have of having to deal with the past in order to um, handle the present or get to the future. If you guys remember back a couple episodes ago, we had um, Adam Scott's character, Justin Sanderson. He comes back to the phrase again, I have to you know, use your past to get through the now, use your past to get through the now. And here again is a situation where the only way Nina and Dorian are able to deal with what's going on in the present with the police officer is to, again, reconnect and go back to their past. For folks who aren't familiar with me, I've, I've taught um, literature on and off for many years in college, and this is a very common trope in the immigrant story. This is a very common idea in African-American literature. Um, a great example of it is Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon. And the idea in it is the character you know, who's very much not interested in where he came from and things like that, he has to contend with that. He goes off and he has to figure out where he came from before he can be totally free in the present and where he is in the future. It's it's having to understand who you are and where you're from 
to be able to deal with things. You know, that's that's a really, really powerful idea in, in literature and in films and African-American studies. And uh, that's kind of what I didn't like about the, that last act or the last bit, you know, once they do get to um, Uncle Neil. They rush through that so quickly. You've had so much taken away from you in the past, you have to go back and reclaim it. You know, that, that sort of idea. It's such a rich sort of topic that's been talked about so many interesting ways to have them rush through it in 15 minutes and just kind of gloss over it. I really struggled with that. Well, and it almost like there were times where the episode kind of felt like a video game to me. And like the police officer was like the big bad that they had to get past. And each time she was like, it was like getting to an end of a level and then like dying at the level at the end of the level. Yeah. Restarting. Exactly. And then all they needed to do was just take the alternate route and go back and connect with her brother. And I just like for me, when I found out that the video recorder was owned by the father. I felt like it was kind of like the dad telling her, like, you have to go back home. You have to see your brother again to to defeat this evil that is going to get you if you don't make this choice. And again, unless, but again, my problem goes back to unless you're familiar with other films and literature and how that topic's been dealt with in art, especially when we're talking about minority communities, because again, their past has so often been taken away from them. It's not handled with any nuance, and I think that's a shame. This also kind of reminded me of the monsters are doing on Maple Street. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for a bunch of reasons, you know, because that's all about the fear of the other and um, and how we're not evolved enough yet to not destroy ourselves and each other. Um, but also because there was the character Tommy who immediately says, "Oh, it's aliens," and everybody else is like, "What?" And he's like, "No, I know about this. It's aliens." And Uncle Neil kind of did that too. With yeah, I totally believe that the camera sends you back in time. Like we don't have to worry about going through the nuances of that. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, "Why did he go with that so much?" And the person I was watching with Cap from Nerdy Show said, "Oh, because well, he reads comic books." <laughs> oral did you have any um parallels that you saw i've been like ruminating on it and it's giving me a very like martin luther king like Mm -hmm. he he knew he was never going to see the future where things get better like he Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. automatically knew it he knew it wasn't in the generation but you strive towards that and i i think that's what the twilight zone in this like final third act was trying to convey you're just like you know you come together you face this hardship Hardship will still come, but slowly on this road, we'll get to a point where this isn't an issue. Kind of like with... Here's a, hoping. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's kind of where I see it because, you know, we, we see all the tropes. We see time travel. We see, you know, the unrelenting force of evil, the benign face of evil. But I think that's, that's the only kind of like bleak hope that you have is like, hey, like you'll get to a point and it's still going to suck and you'll probably get fucked over. But, you know, like, maybe this little girl who's, oh, nope, her dad's dead. Never mind. Cycle continues. Oh. You know, that's interesting, too, because the college itself is Tennyson. And maybe this is a stretch, but, you know, Alfred Tennyson, he was poet laureate of uh, Great Britain um, back in the 1800s. And uh, his one of his most famous pieces is Timbuktu, which is, you know, Timbuktu is representative of this place that's far away that you can never really reach. And. One of his also famous lines, um, in addition to saying, you know, tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. He also said, uh, my strength is, is the strength of 10 because my heart is pure. And 
Mm-hmm. He also had wrote, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. He's also famous for writing, the old order changeth, yielding place to new. And I yeah, think that that's... is like, it's change, you mm-hmm. know? I yeah. think that's exactly what that statement means, is that things have to change or, you know, something has to happen in order for a new way of thinking to come forward. And I think that a lot of those sentiments are a big part of when they actually reach the college in this episode. And it's this this power of the heart. I mean, she literally says that, you know, about, you know, she has the, the Nina talks about love at the very end. And how she feels that that could possibly carry her forward because and that's what he doesn't have in his heart. And I wonder if Tennyson, the, the parallels to that name, I, you know, because it's a, there is no college of Tennyson, and at least in America, it's not. There's the Tennyson that's, right. I think, in Australia. But I just thought that was an interesting allusion there that kind of goes into that idea, um, you know, or you were just talking about with Martin Luther King is that I said, this sort of, we have that hope and we have that, 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 that pure of heart that maybe one day we'll, you know, we will be able to kind of, kind of overcome these sins and that, you know, the people that are making those sins mm-hmm. can actually find the, the sort of love to put in their heart to be able to overcome it themselves. No, hope and and action. Like, yeah, you can't just hope that something's going to get better and it yeah. never gets better. Like you have you have to take a stand. You have to strive. And the pain of it all, I think that we all deal with. It's that idea that, God, we may not be there either. When are, who's going to see this? You know, uh, and Peel again, you know, as powerful as some might find that third act scene where Dorian is able to walk through those gates. He's still dealing with the same things 10, 15 years and his little kids now are growing up and they're going to be dealing with the same things. So it is that like, again, that metaphorical long road, but there's just, there's always a, there's always another Lapsky on it, it seems. So um, it's, or Lasky, I guess is his name. So as a former Virginian, I was really excited to see the Virginia license plate. And then <laughs> that, <laughs> that was shattered quickly <laughs> when I realized it's about <laughs> how backwards that state can be, which it really, really can. Now, before we travel onward into deeper dimensional drifts, it serves us well to let you know that our continued existence rests entirely in your hands. If you find The Fifth Dimension to be a welcome escape through your favorite anthology of the unknown, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Apple Podcasts is the largest podcasting platform there is, so taking the time to share your thoughts there means a lot. Podchaser is an incredible resource for podcast discovery, including host profiles, so you can follow our exploits across other series and the ability to rate and review specific episodes, create lists, and more. Do us the tremendous favor of leaving a review, and we might just read it here on the show. We should also tell you that if you're a fan of thrills, chills, and paranormal experiences, you should check out some of our other series here on the Consequence Podcast Network. The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast, and Halloweenies, where we dissect horror franchises one film at a time, beginning with Halloween and now the Nightmare on Elm Street series. If you haven't yet, be sure to add The Fifth Dimension, a Twilight Zone podcast, to your preferred podcast app so you'll never miss an episode and keep the discussion going with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Fifth Dimension Podcast. Obscure metaphysical explanation to cover a phenomenon. Reasons dredged out of the shadows to explain away that which cannot be explained. Call it parallel planes or just insanity. Whatever it is, you'll find it in the Twilight Zone. Now in Science and Superstition, we're going to be talking about the fundamentals and the mechanics of the Twilight Zone. And we're also going to debate whether or not this is science fiction or fantasy. And we're probably going to also share what made us sweat and what made us anxious in this episode. But before we get to any of that, let's let's talk about the mechanics. The object 
is the camcorder. Now, what is this camcorder hold over the zone? What did, where, where is this power? We've there's a there's history to this camcorder. It comes from Nina's father. Are we supposed to believe that her father has maybe some influence over this uh, camcorder, and that's where it gets its uh, its qualities? What are some theories we have here? That was my theory throughout the whole. Like once I found that out that it was owned by the father, I thought he was kind of like this angel character maybe through the camcorder, kind of like trying to get her to go back home. But I think anytime you're dealing with time loops, time travel, it's sci-fi. We're not dealing really with a fantasy right now, especially considering the um, subject matter of this episode of how to like topical and relevant it is right now. I don't think that we can call it fantasy, but I definitely think it's sci-fi. I think anytime you use a machine, one like for one thing, to transport you either forward or backward in time, we're dealing with science fiction. Maybe you guys don't, but I once I found out that the dad owned the camcorder, I was like, okay, he has some control on the situation, especially because the brother said mm -hmm. that dad always felt that he had a connection to you. He always knew where you were, no matter where you were at. Yeah. And so I feel like that wouldn't have been said or even talked about if it didn't have some correlation with the camcorder. I don't know if I, I see it as the grandfather doing anything directly. I've probably gone to the point where I don't necessarily <laughs> try to figure out why everything that happens happens in the twilight. Yeah, we don't so have to. I think I'm just, no, it's, it's fun speculation, yeah. but I think you could also just drive yourself crazy and up the wall. But uh, no, I do think it kind of does go back again. Uncle Neil gives us those ideas of, you know, I'm starting to believe some of the old ways, you know, some of the things that were brought again from our past, things that people used to believe. Um, again, the idea that, um, there could be connections between people, very deep connections, and you can sort of um, know without speaking or know where they are. Um, you know, you share that with Dorian just like you shared it with Dad, he tells um, Nina, or Dad thought he shared it with you. So I do think um, it ties back into um, some of those ideas a little bit more than just um, chemistry and relationships. What do you call it? Like, uh, like, like almost like heritage, almost like, like passing ESP. on. I mean, like, you know, unity or, so unity or solidarity between people. I mean, there's there's things like that going on. Is there something specifically going on between the grandfather or the father and um, and, the, and the daughter through the camera? I, I didn't really even think about that. But mm -hmm. again, I'm not trying to figure out anything anymore. I just... Uh, Life's too short. <laughs> oh, yeah, true. I, I mean, for this section is always going to be more of an open area for, like, you know, theorizing. Uh, but I, but th I do I do think what it does is when Uncle Neil says that, he opens up the idea, just like when we go into the Twilight Zone, right? It opens up the idea that things are possible that maybe we wouldn't, we wouldn't normally think, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of what that does, if nothing else, when he says that line. I'd say it's imaginative, like a fantasy, just because we all want to turn back time sometimes. Um, I do think that it brings up a lot of other questions. Like uh, she said, two of her brothers were killed in violent episodes. Mm -hmm. So was her dad around for those? And was he able to rewind and decided not to? Or was the power different when his dad had it? Or was it not there? Good point. Who knows? It's interesting to like talk about like the the just kind of what this power has and why in a, in a sense it happens at this moment, you know, like in a lot of devices with the twilight zone, it happens to be circumstantial, you know, yeah. it's like someone who stumbles upon something, mm -hmm. but this is clearly something that she's had for a while, you know, and I have to imagine that, 
you know, you've rewound and fast forwarded things in the past using that camcorder. So it's, is it because they, it happens to be at the right place at the right time with the certain elements, you know, it just, mm-hmm. maybe it's, it's mood. It's, it's absolutely a mood point because it's obviously it's more thematical and in, in, in that nature. But I do think it's some, something kind of interesting to note, just given the fact that there's a sense of history to this camcorder. Because why now? You know, it obviously has, it always had its powers or is it just working for her now? Because does if if the grandfather does have a say in it or is in control of it, does he know that these events are going to happen and that she's going to want to rewind the time? So I think it's interesting to think about why it's now working because she's owned it for so long. And you're right. Like in most, Mike, in most episodes of The Twilight Zone, someone stumbles upon an object. Mm-hmm. To go back to our favorite episode, Nick of Time, <laughs> they <laughs> of stumble upon the fortune teller. It's not like they've always had it. So when you've always had an object... Why does it now have these magical properties to it? Yeah. I concur when it comes to like soft science fiction. I don't really care about the mechanics. If you've seen us, I don't, everyone's like, oh, you know, like this explanation at the end really doesn't hold water. I'm like, it doesn't need to. (laughs) That's, it's not, to me, it's not really what's important. It's what it's trying to convey. I'm just like, oh, camcorder now, rewinds time. All right, let's get this show on the road. <laughs> and you know why that is? That's because you read comic books. Yeah. <laughs> so you just exactly. accept it. If you're into the sci- science fiction or, or fantasy, it's a lot easier to accept things. I think as someone who is into both of those subject matters, if I were to stumble upon something like that, I'd be like, okay, this is what we're doing now. You know, it wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't be sitting here there like, oh my God, what's going on? I think because I enjoy this like genre Mm -hmm. i would be so accepting of what it's like if i were to run into a ghost i'd be like okay yeah no like this is what i've thought anyways so or this is what i've read about anyways actually what i think you would say is (laughs) 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 exactly i think it goes back to as long as the ends kind of justify the means i don't care how we get there the important thing is we get to the idea of there's something out there that we can't stop and we're powerless Mm -hmm. you know and as long as we get to there how it actually happens. I mean, we get the feeling. We get we we're there and we feel with them. I mean, that's what it's trying to get across to yeah. people. So, well, if we're uh, talking about ghosts, then what made us scared? What's made us sweat? What are some scenes here that just really got under our skin? When he touches their car, it's so creepy, and maybe it's because he's the killer too from this first season of True Detective. But it was just. It, like, was possession, like, ownership of something that wasn't, like, it was so matter-of-fact, like, yeah, I own you, basically, is what it felt like. Also, the scene where she buys him apple pie, and she's just trying to make him see her as a person. Um, You could feel the tension in that scene of her, like, you could almost, like, feel the droplets of sweat on her forehead. Because he has no idea why she's doing this. Like, again, this is his first time interacting with this woman. Mm -hmm. For her, she has seen him fucking like shove her son into a glass painting Mm -hmm, she's mm -hmm. seen him chase them down find them no matter where they go so she's terrified of him and it's it's like a monster it's like jason friday the 13th like she's dealing with this like entity for her but for him it's just this person who's come up to him and, and he doesn't know why and so you can just you can feel how scared she is and i think her acting in that scene was so great i was like totally enthralled in that scene and i think that for me was like the scariest part of the story certainly just the sudden derailment of their day which was just a really simple act of getting to school um suddenly became this fight for survival that shift was pretty dramatic and certainly unsettling 
But the subtler things, like where you're not really sure if he's going to reach for his gun or his taser. Yeah. You don't, mm-hmm. like he doesn't even know. You know, he's just reacting with his trigger finger, not with lots of training or calculated thought or thinking about the consequences of whatever he does pull. I didn't love the way, you know, you, you feel like things are going well towards the end and you know that the, sh- the other shoe's going to drop. It's going to go poorly because that's how these things work. There's going to be some indication that things are not as beautiful as you think. And I was annoyed because even though you know that's going to happen, I, I still wanted that moment of, of just, okay, we're enjoying this and we'll see what happens once the camera's broken. But then you knew that something else was going to happen. So normally I'd be annoyed at this ending after we've already had a couple endings and I'm, I'm like, I'm satisfied. Let's move on. But I wasn't annoyed by the other shoe dropping because, which, you know, it's a good lesson anyway. It was so beautifully done with the police lights on her face, just so subtle. So it was unsettling and awful, but in the most beautiful way possible. Artfully directed, I guess. It was beautiful in the way it made my skin crawl. Yeah. I think the little interactions, because, you know, like once once law enforcement comes into a place, even if you are the ones who have like called them there, there's just this this thick tension. And that, you know, seeing her play out these scenarios and, you know, me having played out some of those actual scenarios in real life, knowing that that's none of this works. None of this matters because in the end, he either gets what he wants or you end up dead or in jail, which is what he actually wants. So I think that to me was like the most irksome thing because those scenes play, they can be really tinny. Like it's, you know, you see the strings, but you know, like the strings are society. So you're just like, well, here we go. I'm uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. Yeah, it's not even like it was science fiction or fantasy. It was just fact. No. (laughs) This was just a documentary. This was, sadly, this was like social science, um, you know, in terms of some of these issues. Um, I could talk about Lasky a little bit. I will later. For what made my skin crawl, again, I think it's what Oral said. It's, It's being there and watching these different scenarios, all of them tragic or scary or horrifying. I mean... Whether it be obviously the worst case scenario, a mother's nightmare seeing her child shot, but even just the indignity, the injustice of, you know, she makes that speech. She says, you know, I, I paid for this car. I worked hard for it. And then the officer still comes out and says, you're not leaving until you, I mean, just to see all these things play out. And it gets said very, it's bluntly said, uh, I think by Uncle Neil or Nina later on, there's something out there, you know, there's something that's always coming for us. There's sort of a pulsing music at times when he's showing up. It almost sounds like the Jaws music, the way it pulses. It's not the Jaws music, but it's got that you know, sort of, dun, 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 you know, it's like something is after us. You just have no agency whatsoever in the situation. No matter how you've been prepared, no matter how you act, no matter how you behave, it's all going to depend on how someone else responds to a situation. Which is why I think that motel sequence is so terrifying to me because there's such a claustrophobic notion of like, there's he's guarding the door out there and you are now at the whim of him. Like, And no matter what you do, he he has physically the mm-hmm. most control of the situation. This is, this is a highway patrolman too, mm-hmm. I assume. And now he's not just stopping you on the road for whatever reason he may he's come up with. Your personal he's life. in your hotel room, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. I mean, this is talk about it. As she says later, you've overstepped the line. Yeah. And she's talking about a lot more things, but good Lord, is this overstepping the yeah. line you know, yeah. in a very physical sense. Well, as we've talked about what scared us 
Let's talk about what we learned in a section we like to call the lesson. The tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. For the record, prejudices can kill and suspicion can destroy. I think the lesson here is that sometimes people are just inherently evil, like, or at least for the police officer. I think that it shows us that racism is really easy to teach, but really hard to unlearn. Mm -hmm. And you see that in the, when she buys the pie for him is that all she, she thinks that maybe if I go over there and I'm kind to him and I show him that we are just like everyone else, I am not different from you. We can have a conversation that he won't come and stalk us. But it doesn't matter. He It doesn't change his mind. She is so nice to him. And asking him questions about his life, she relates to him about his, I, I believe, dead wife. It seems like that's where yeah, the conversation I, I, goes. Either they got divorced wife. or she died. And, mm -hmm. and she tries to just really show him, like, my son is my life, and we're driving him to, to college. And um, it doesn't change the outcome. And so I think that... A big part of this episode was showing us that sometimes people are just fucking awful and that's just the way that it is. A scene that a lot of people point to, but you bring up a detail that was really interesting to me, kind of, again, coming from where I'm coming from. And that was the idea of the wedding ring. And something has clearly gone. And when I said earlier, Lasky's not quite the same, perhaps, as some of the others. There's something more at work there. I've spent probably, I'd say, like... 24 hours in the past couple of years in Charlottesville talking to ex-neo-Nazi skinheads who have left that scene. They've left that life of hate. And if there's one thing I've found out from that, it's exactly what Sammy said. It's really, really, it could take decades. It takes so much effort uh, to be able to leave a life of hate, but it's so easy to fall into it. And I think this is a great little scene and not to not to sit there and say Lasky is a good person on both sides or to defend him at all but I think you see because when I talk to these uh, folks um, you know who've been in these groups before they always said what ends up happening is you have some sort of pothole you have some sort of void something in you is broken and what ends up happening is you start fearing others they're coming for what you have uh, you start blaming others for the way things are in your life and once that fear and blame turns to hate, then you're capable of doing anything. You're capable of pulling a gun on someone. You're capable of doing terrible things and dehumanizing them. And again, this is not to defend Lapsky or Lasky. I keep calling him Lapsky. This is not to defend Lasky. But if the idea is ultimately to change hearts and minds, then you do have to understand that there is something, no one just shows up to hate one day. You know, it does come from somewhere. And, um, you know, and it's, of course, uh, that, that's kind of what I've learned from my research the past couple of years. And I thought this was a really interesting thing in the writing because as terrible as Lasky is, it points to there's probably something that happened to him. And he has shifted that and he's projected it onto others. In addition to maybe him, you know, being sort of uh, having his power take over you know, how he views the world. 
Um, but it means that people who are like that are redeemable. I know we don't want to think that about this guy. We just want to hate him. But if we want to change hearts and minds, we have to be able to see him sometimes the worst of the worst and understand that they are broken individuals. They are perhaps redeemable. That's not necessarily our first priority. Our first priority is to protect people, right? To make sure we're safe. But I thought that was a really subtle piece of writing that's really smart. And I think a lot of people kind of won't pick up on that. Again, I only did just because, you know, I've been talking about these issues so much with people who came from where Lasky is. Hearing about your research like that, that it's an it's an interesting concept, but like faced with Mm -hmm. a prescient current injustice, none of that really matters Mm -hmm. because, you know, you reach out to someone and you you try to connect with them on that human level to 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 show you about like, you know, we can equate, but equality doesn't exist in that instance. Like equality is an agreement Mm -hmm. by two people to say these two things that we think are disparate are of equal value. And when that doesn't exist, what what you learn is sometimes you can you reach out to someone across the aisle and, and, and foster an understanding. And then sometimes that's just not going to happen. So sure. you kind of have to say, fuck you. I, I'm going to... Fuck you. Literally, like, that's, that's what, what this episode teaches you. Fuck you. <laughs> sometimes you could change people, and sometimes, of course, they're going to have to die out. You know, they're no. going to have to fuck you. I, I totally get that. I just thought it was an interesting detail. They gave La- Lasky just a little bit more depth than I think maybe some folks will realize. Again, that could just be me speculating into that. But, of course, um, you're not going to be able to change everyone's heart everyone's mind and, and there's more in fact there's more important things to do in the meantime and that's protect people like nina and dorian allow them to live their lives and do what they need to do hey if lasky can be redeemed at some point great but it isn't the top priority i agree with that and probably impossible in many cases there were a couple lessons for me obviously definitely when she says the thing about how oh i see it now you're afraid i think that was mm-hmm. really the the key to this episode and it was her moment where she was winning if we're deciding who was winning or losing um she was really winning in that moment and it reminded me of a soundbite i heard after i think it was a terrorist drove a truck through a crowd in london or in the uk and i heard a soundbite from someone on npr they talked to the scottish lady and said so in the u.s we say you probably want to arm yourselves now because you have terrorist events like this. You probably want to rethink your gun laws and uh, arm people. And she said the the Scottish woman's response was like, that's so pussy. That's such a cop out. I mean, obviously you can defend yourself without being compelled by your fear or controlled by your fear. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw a lot of that in the cop that he, he, like a lot of the people that you're talking about, Matt, It's driven by his fear, and it's what makes him offensive. Yeah, and it's like, you know, I think depth, depth is is something that we look in retrospect, like in moments like, yeah, we are are a collection of, of, of our hopes and our dreams and our fears. And, you know, confronting that is really difficult. And, you know, then when you when you look at something or you change your perspective, you see that the depths in in the onion. But sometimes you just you got to. You got a slice of an onion. Deal with the onion. Yeah. Sure. Sure. And then I also thought on a much smaller level, the fact that they have to kind of break rules to get to their destination was interesting that 
you have to take the tunnel. Because <laughs> you have to work outside the system because yeah. the system has failed you. Yeah, exactly. So those were the things that I got. Oral, did you get any more lessons out of this episode that we haven't touched on? Apparently, Uncle Neil is running his own underground railroad <laughs> from his house to Tennyson <laughs> through condos that are going to be like bulldozed down, like the condos that are going up and like all this sort of stuff. Like you kind of like you work outside the system. It's like, mm-hmm. um, you know, I know people who work with uh, sex workers. They're trying to get legislation passed to decriminalize a lot because some of it is is, is trafficking and some of them is uh, of their own volition. But if you can't really make that happen, you know, in a like a like in the sun legal sort of way, you gain the system. You gain the system to make sure people don't fall through the cracks, because if the system isn't designed to work for you, you either change it, which is is difficult, as we've seen in this episode, or you work around it. Yeah. And it wasn't it was it wasn't subtle at all. But when they're working outside the system, Lasky can't get to them. You know, he's he's searching around. He can't find them there. They're safe from him there. So again, that wasn't done in a subtle fashion. But uh, that that wasn't that was interesting to to me. What I kind of gleaned from this episode is just the you know obviously the the corruption of authority. I think that's a big uh, part of this for sure. And obviously we've discussed about how the system is broken, but the it's a, such a small slice at the end. And what's obviously we've already discussed about how what what the rush third act, but. The idea of gentrification tied to the concept of the camcorder intrigues me. And I actually think it's an interesting pivot that I really wish they would have been able to kind of nail a little bit more on this episode. And this goes beyond demographics and race in the sense that I think right now, one of the biggest threats that we have to just our overall lifestyle is just the idea of this consolidation of commodities and that you have the idea of like the the threats of capitalism and what it's actually done to our own history. And that, you know, when he's talking about how, oh, all these condos are going to be built up and, you know, there's there needs to be this preservation of history. The the irony is that and, and I see this with almost kind of how you could view the camcorder in this is that we have so much technology at this point to capture the the now and we have so much the, uh, technology to to be able to to pull up details to be able to to know things and yet it seems as if the current and the the, the past is being erased on a day-to-day basis and it, it's with whether through gentrification or corporatization across america i, I mean that's just something that i that i've just been kind of chewing with over you know, the past few weeks, when I mean, we discussed mm-hmm. it on the break on this podcast, is just the idea that like the brick and mortar is being uh, vanished. And there are so many neighborhoods that have so much history that has been destroyed. And you don't hear about that history ever again, because they've been wiped away with with a, a brand new, you know, fucking LA fitness gym or some shit like that. Or, you know, and where does that history go? And who is responsible for that history? And how do you actually make sure that history stays? Because that history is what will be part and parcel important to those checks and balances. Yeah. Because Uncle you see Neil is yeah, wholeheartedly I, responsible for all that so history. So it, it was a little separate from what I feel a lot of the episode was really trying to get at. And, and but I, I did really appreciate that. And I'm, I'd love to see if this series could actually explore that on a broader level, maybe. How do we do better in the future? You know, if we don't know who we are, where we come from, if we don't learn from our mistakes, how, how do we improve? Well, I guess the question now is who won? 
I think fate wins. And I think that <laughs> we as a society have romanticized fate so much that it's like, oh, we met because of fate or we we did this because of fate. And I think sometimes fate is cruel and yeah. harsh and mean. And I think in that final moment when the camera breaks and then you hear the sirens, it just goes to show that sometimes fate is fucked up and doesn't want the best thing to happen. Um, so that's why I think who wins. I don't think the mom wins. I don't think the police officer wins. I think that the notion of whatever was supposed to happen happened. That's who wins. I think Nina and Dorian and Uncle Neil, I think they win a battle and a much longer war. A much And there's guaranteed, mm-hmm. as Oral pointed out, there's guaranteed to be another battle and struggle tomorrow, too. Definitely. That's kind of how I see it. Probably with 12 other kids showing up that day for school. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. All at the same time, I think the system wins. The system yeah. wins until it doesn't. And and not to like pull away from the idea of like fate, but I think like in this instance, fate doesn't really like exist. Fate is w- what we say. Oh, you know, these things happen, and it's you know it's so bad and so sad that it happened. But really, like the system wins because we haven't done anything to change it. Like fate is something mm-hmm. that is you you think about like the gods and like the celestial wheel and it puts it in motion and Zeus says, okay, now like Poseidon capsized their ship, you know, in the Odyssey, really what it is, is is a failure of society. And so like, if, if a system is corrupt, the system wins. And like you, like, you know, Matt said, like you win a battle and you keep fighting and you may win a battle, but you lose the war until you don't. Maybe it's not fate. Maybe it's a feeling of inevitability. But mm-hmm. the shame of it, of course, yes. is it isn't inevitable. Yeah. It just feels mm-hmm. inevitable. It's that snail by the side of the road. As that snail slides and slides, we have to ask ourselves how we would slide. And uh, our next section, <laughs> I'd like to call Penny for Your Thoughts. It doesn't matter, Mr. Poole. A man with your ability. Hearing people's thoughts, strange delusion. But with proper medical care, it will go away. Miss Turner, it is not a delusion. There, you see, I can read your thoughts. Now, this quick segment, we just asked ourselves, what would we do in this situation? And uh, let's say that you found yourselves with this camcorder. And as we saw, she, she uses the, the camcorder for, for very uh, vital ways. But also uses it for some sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, moments. There's, there's some moments of levity in here, like with the lotto numbers. And I thought that was very cute. But uh, what would you do in this situation if uh, if you're Nina? That's a good question. Like, do you stop at a Circle K, get some lottery tickets, <laughs> change the course of history? I mean, I guess I think there are times in the episode where I can't really tell if it works if she's not recording. I think she has to be recording the moment to be able to replay it. Yeah. Um. So I guess I can't say like, oh, I would go back and re- like replay my entire life and make different decisions. I think if it comes down to we could only replay moments that I've recorded, once I realized it going forward, I would definitely start using it to my advantage, especially because I would hope that I'm not finding myself in situations that they just found themselves in. But I definitely think she uses it the way that almost everyone would have used it to change events that were horrible. I mean, I don't feel like she, in a sense, had a choice. Her son's, you know, something terrible happens to them. Her son is laying dead on the ground. Once um, she realizes that she can undo that, you're going to, you know, undo that. Of course, we all know the same thing or something worse or something adjacent to it is, 
is going to keep happening. So, I mean, yeah, I would do exactly what she did. I'd try to undo the terrible thing that happened to me. And, of course, the the tragedy of it all is it just it goes to show how little, uh, a little, how little power she has over the outcome here. I think I would tail the cop. <laughs> find yeah, out where he's going. I, I would have I would have I think I would have tried diner. I would have tried that I would have I, I think I would have waited for him to leave when I saw him leave I would just keep following him and you wonder why cops used and, to pull you over when you and were I, I, shit no, like I, this I, I, I think I, I feel like if I had the, the capability first off I would lose my fucking mind if I could rewind things <laughs> this is you're talking to someone that like literally like second guesses everything in life that's why the um, episode of the black of black mirror where they can like rewind in their eyes yeah. moments and like watch moments over again that's i had like that's my hell because yeah. i know i sound so stupid sometimes in interactions with people where i'm like why the fuck did i just exactly say that? see that's that's what would happen with me as someone who's 15 years bulimic i probably would just be like eating every meal i ate i just keep rewinding and then i'd be like well God, i feel good that's the truth so, um that's i'd that say fun, i'd but... say my son you would uh Stop yourself from what throwing up, and you would uh, stop yourself from saying uh, awkward things. Oh, constantly. <laughs> but I think the difference in this yeah. episode, when it comes down to this particular segment, is that in the comedian and even Nightmare at Thirty Thousand Feet, they they do shitty shit. You know, like Kumail Najani's character, like I wanted to stop him because yeah. he was doing awful things. Well, they have more agency. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas in this episode, you don't blame her for what she's doing because. Any of one of us would have done the same thing if your son died. Yeah, if well, I mean, or if you were in this situation, you would be replaying this moment to get it to the way that you want it to be. So there's no in this episode in particular. I don't feel like there's a would you do it or would you not do yeah, it. Yeah, there's no choice. Right? There's no choice here. Yeah, Whereas in the yeah. comedian, he had a fucking choice. He completely erased people. Yeah. So this episode, she is warranted in her decisions. And I don't blame her for absolutely anything she does in this episode. It's one of the ones you can't win. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Until you do. But then you don't. <laughs> I, do love, I do love those moments when she does use it. And when I say I love, I mean, it, it's such a visceral reaction. At first, she's confused. Oh, my God, deja vu. But, oh, my God, she's reaching over. My son is back. Or, or she's freaking out what happened. Or she's terrified of what she just saw. So, I mean, I think it's also such... I don't know. Just it's such an emotional thing every time she does it too. Except when she's doing it for like you know the one time for levity. But mm-hmm. I thought that was like really powerful every time. It sort of take it takes a toll on her when she does it. Yeah, and I think she also s- seems to feel like things are. I don't know. She's understanding that things are actually getting worse the more I do this too. You know, every it does seem to escalate. have some sort of escalation to it. It does. Yeah. Because yeah. why does the cop even show up when they're? getting to the college you know how the hell does he know they're there well he they, they, they came out of the railroad the underground railroad yeah but why is he there he's supposed to be on the highway what the hell well the point is right he's he's everywhere it's my uh favorite uh, fleetwood mac song um <laughs> you love everywhere love that, that song <laughs> we just we there was just like three pop cultural references to that all different at one time all, all, i hope, I hope that in the editing everyone could hear oh, all of them oh come on matt have you seen our fucking apartment it's like seven different pop cultures have, have seven that's have like i seen your podcast studio? it's uh, <laughs> get the apartment a, people should see this place 11 <laughs> different pop culture references and that's a reference to stranger, stranger things, things which is one of them hawkins uh, indiana all right uh eleanor what would you do? You didn't. You didn't answer that. You just kind of. I wish that I could be. <laughs> I wish I could be as smart as she was. I don't think I would have been as quick to come to the conclusion that I should tell my son, 
Because I would think there's no way he's going to believe me or, you know, all the things that she tried. I wouldn't have thought to buy him pie. I wish I could have been as smart as she is. I probably would have given up earlier, broken the camera and then lived with whatever happened. So good for her for yeah. remaining vigilant and being creative and teaming actually, no, up with Actually, no, good for you, Eleanor. That's actually like you would break the camera and not let like not change events. That's a pretty big person over there. So... I commend you. It would end up with my son being dead, so not awesome. <laughs> no, not, not exactly awesome. Clearly, you wouldn't have had the same relationship with your son then, I guess. That's It wouldn't true. have been a Dorian. <laughs> it wouldn't have been as wholesome, though. No. Let's, yeah. let's face it. Dorian is an amazing son. Um, Maybe for a sure. DeLorean. You're saying okay. I'd be a bad mom. Thanks. I get no, it. No, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that at all, but uh, <laughs> I'm saying that maybe, maybe a bratty kid. I don't know. <laughs> My cats are very well behaved. No. Um, Oral, what do you think? I'd what call a do? car service. Because <laughs> really, like, <laughs> if you can't drive, have somebody drive for you. Car mm. service. That's a great PSA. Yeah, I just go lift. <laughs> that would have uh, solved it. If they were that close. Mm. All right. Well, that leads us to our last section, our overall thoughts. Now, we have done all we could do. If we've been successful, well and good, there are no problems. But if, on the other hand, this final treatment has not achieved the desired result. Please remember, Miss Tyler, that you can still live a long and fruitful life among people of your own kind. Here comes the last of it. I wish you every good luck. Now, in this section, we rate the episode from one to five doors. Five doors being a classic episode and one being uh, one we'd skip. Who wants to door the episode first? Okay, so... What sucks here is that I absolutely loved the episode until that third act because I thought it was a little all over the place. I didn't love the ending. I didn't hate it, though, either. I gave the comedian three doors, Mm -hmm. as you guys know. Three doors down. down. (laughs) Kryptonite. And You can reuse that, Jeff. (laughs) I'm going to keep doing it it every episode. I'm doing it every episode. I'm doing it every episode. Anyways, I think that the start of the episode up until those like last 15 minutes were so well done, especially for a director who, if you check his IMDb page, only has 2018's The First Purge on his like resume. And that's not to say that he's a bad director. Gerard McMurray. No, I mean, The First Purge is great, so. But I'm just saying as like, this is his first attempt at television. Yeah. And I think that the writing kind of loses itself toward the, towards the end. And again, that's not to say that I didn't like it because I did enjoy it, but I don't think it was as strong as the other two. So I would have to give it two and a half doors, you know, not quite a three doors, but definitely two and a half. I I think it was beautifully shot. I thought I really liked the music. I loved the diner. Um, I loved the subject matter, obviously. I thought it was very relevant. The Twilight Zone is the perfect platform to talk about these things in a science fiction or fantasy genre. And I loved the way that they did that. And then for the people who are going to be like, oh, it's too on the nose or it's too political. It's like, well, no, this is what the Twilight Zone has always been about. This is why Rod Serling switched to sci-fi was that he could talk about these issues in allegory without people getting upset about it. So I think this is exactly what the Twilight Zone is meant to do. I just wish that it was done differently in the end. I wish it had ended when they got to the uncle's house. I wish that that was it. That the the way that they won was by going home. Um, But they had to add that third act to it. And I understand its relevance and I understand why it's important. But I do feel that it wasn't very well written. All right. Who's next? Mateo? Mateo. (laughs) No one's called me that since uh, last night. 
Um, <laughs> oh, what was your night like? <laughs> oh, about three more burritos than I care to remember. But, uh, <laughs> rewind. Replay. Uh, Mm. <laughs> you know what? The, the ambition here was remarkable. I'm really on board for the first half. I thought, I mean, I thought the writing lacked subtlety at times. It's a lot to try to accomplish in 40 minutes. And sometimes characters had to say things they would never say just to make you understand what was going on or what they were thinking or some of the themes. And then at other times, the characters were so natural with each other. And I love that about it. It was really trying to force a lot into 40 minutes. I think it succeeded. Again, someone who comes from my background, um, growing up white, growing up affluent, growing up with the idea that law enforcement are helpers. They're people you go to when you need help. I think this is just another artifact, another piece of art that should allow someone like me to better, you know, not only sympathize, but hopefully, you know, when you're in there and kind of really feeling along with them, empathize with just the terror again, the terror and the, the injustice and the anger. And of course, uh, how far it can actually go. We can see you know, a death. It, it accomplishes that. But after that, I mean, it just goes through so many rich topics of um, going home and solidarity and connecting to the past. And you feel all the time it's it's sort of like this microcosm of um, so much more going on. And at the end, they try to shift to it. And it's and now we're not talking about we, we're talking about us. You did this to us. And you're seeing, I mean, it, it tries to do so much. And I think it it does it sometimes. It just tries to beat you over the head with it, unfortunately, instead of taking a more nuanced take at it. I value it for some of its insights. But as an overall, uh, you know, television episode, I'm going to, I'm also going to go. Uh, two and a half doors or two doors, one ajar. One ajar. I one like ajar. <laughs> you, you're going. You're really gunning for that one ajar uh, visual, and I think that works. I'm trying to make it a thing. If three doors down can become a thing again in 2019, I can make a door ajar a thing. I am it's making fine. three it's doors fine. down when is a, a thing a, again. Here you go. When is a door not a door? When it's, it's a jar. A jar. <laughs> I like it. I'm gonna, that, I'm gonna make that show. Great that's, dad that's pretty joke. Good. Jesus. Eleanor, take it away. I'm gonna go with 3.25 Dorian's. <laughs> Dorian is also the enemy's name in the mask. Oh. Uh, 1994 is Jim Carrey. Ignore God, him, Eleanor, please. It's ignore just him. just insufferable. And somebody should stop him. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Oh, I said ignore him. Don't encourage him. <laughs> I thought it was really beautifully done, uh, beautifully directed. Um, I enjoyed the story. It was very on the nose. Uh, but, you know, it was good. And it was exactly like a classic episode of The Twilight Zone, specifically Death's Head Revisited. <laughs> but I am, I'm still waiting for the, the episode that the whole time I'm on the edge of my seat and I go, oh, my God, I never saw that coming. So that's why I'm holding off on extra doors there. I think Makes most sense. of us are still, yeah. except yeah. for maybe Michael. Michael liked the comedian a lot. I really did. Like I, mean, the I did too. The rest too. of us are maybe waiting for that that over that moment that really says, "Wow, Peels totally nailed it for us." Yeah, it was Earth the whole time. That one. Yeah, <laughs> I will give it three doors. Yeah, I love anthology series. I've watched a lot of them: Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, Twilight Zone again with Forrest Whitaker. It brings up a lot of good concerns. Yeah, it's really blunt. But, you know, when you're getting shot for walking across the street or just driving and you're at a stop sign, like it's, you know, there's not a lot of ways you can approach that that's not tact. And like, you know, we give a pass to Pilgrim's Progress, this like primary reader when it's an allegory. But like, that's what allegories are sometimes. Sometimes they're just really blatant. Mm hmm. Does it have issues? Yes. Is it a perfect ep episode? No. 
but it's a Twilight Zone episode and it, it works. So three doors. I'm going to echo uh, a couple of you. Um, I think that uh, direction wise that I thought this was um, pretty stellar of an episode. Uh, the, the first 75% of this episode is just incredibly tight television. I really applaud Gerard McMurray. I think that for the fact that the, he really only has, uh, you know, the, the purge, the first purge and burning sands. And I guess he was a producer with Fruitvale station, which is phenomenal. One of the fucking best movies of the last 10 years, but th- there's a, a tautness to this, the sort of direction that's in this, like the first thirds that, feels at odds with uh with that final that final act and and, and just even tonally i mean it, it almost at, at some points it, it feels as if we were going from black mirror to like almost like an episode of this is us to matt's point i think there's a lot to chew on in 10 to 15 minutes and the fact that i mean we've been joking about the tunnel itself and the fact that you i do i do appreciate the thematic value of that you do kind of have to cut the corners because the system has failed you i really i actually really love that and i didn't even think about that while watching it but the way that i i almost looked at it as like an easy way to get from point a to point b um in the short amount of time that you had and for me it just it felt as if there were three different episodes here all talking about the same sort of uh, uh, theme that was going on. And I think a lot of that can, you know, be attributed to someone that like that, that, that has a lot to say, that wants a lot to say. And this is the Twilight Zone. It is a medium to talk about so many like different uh, themes in politics and to just kind of put it all in into one place. And it's almost kind of like the last Jedi thing for me, where like Ryan Johnson, he had his opportunity to do Star Wars. I'm going to put everything in it as much as possible by, uh, until the very end. And it's, I, I, I saw a lot of similarities with that because it, there's just so much going on in Last Jedi and there's so much going on towards the very end of this. And um, I think Solon Sefew Hines, this is his first episode of television. And I think it, it kind of shows that in a way. And it's just in, in the sense that they're structurally, it seems it's a little at odds uh, towards the end. So for me, that's kind of where my, my doors are at. So I'm, I'm at 2.5 as well, but again, it's, it's so fucking smart. And like in that, in that, that first, that first 75% of this is just some of the most tense television I've seen in a while. Like, mm-hmm. like I was like really riveted in the entire time. I mean, again, like I mentioned that, that motel sequence, like, I like my heart was like beating so fucking fast just because there's, there's that sort of like the claustrophobia that, that really comes across there. So there's a lot to really love in this, and there's a lot that, that that's really frustrated me. And a lot of it's just you could hear this on the Losers Club when I talk about um, uh, Gerald's Game, which is a movie that I always joke saying like this is a movie that is 98% great, and that last five minutes of that movie just fucking tumble out of control. I couldn't disagree and, more. <laughs> and I know when everyone on the podcast always disagrees with me on that. But for me, it's like I, I, landings are the most important thing for me in any narrative, and I just felt like it does get the landing at the very end at the button, but it's just that one segment that just, I'm just like, I was kind of like, wait, where are we going with this? So, and I think, um, I think hopefully everyone, I mean, we're really, really, you know, going deep and breaking down these, you know, these episodes, there are definitely five doors, so to speak, five door elements in every one of these. Episodes. Yes, absolutely. Of and part of, I think why, you know, you might say, man, only one, we've only seen one four so far. In a series, we've all—I think we've all enjoyed the first three episodes quite Definitely, a bit, yeah. and had so much to talk to. I mean, I guess I think you know again when you're talking Twilight Zone, whether you're talking the property or you're talking you know Jordan Peele. I mean, we are expecting one of those, I think, episodes at some point that is just going to kind of blow the doors off. There's just really <laughs> going to nail everything and you know make us say this is as good as television can get right now. So I think that's part of why we maybe 
haven't uh it sounds like we're kind of uh maybe even uh not as high on it as we actually are but there's a lot of expectation i think for no I, i'm absolutely loving everything that i've been yeah. seeing in this show mm-hmm. i mean i think this is the like i was saying like i i just get so excited every time i see peel appear on screen mm-hmm. because it get like again like one of the things i love so much is that there's such an authority to, to his style and like I, I, there's a yeah. comfortability of that authority for me this time we got him reading a newspaper just like <laughs> Ron Serling we yes. interrupted him which is funny because I think that's also a reference to the Nick of Time promo because I believe he's reading it when he's doing that ad mm-hmm. as well it's just there's just so much there's just so much love and like yeah. for the original series but also just so much respect for where you can take this and, and that's what i still get from every episode and that's what you get from this one as well yeah, and i think it even when it, it's it's taking big swings so even when it fails it feels like that sort of glorious failure we're glad they took the swing mm-hmm. and went there and sometimes they're connecting so and to be fair mm-hmm. i'm probably gonna remember this big swing more than any of the other sort of conclusions in the last of the last two that we've seen so far yep. just because i'm just it, there's just something about it that's just like the, the the dreamy effect i guess in hindsight i'm appreciating a little bit more of like the idea of them going to the tunnel and then all of a sudden all the cops coming mm-hmm. there, there is a sort of dreamy effect to it all that does stay with you. It's almost like Lynchian in a weird way, like in a, especially if, like with its uh, abstractness. Well, Oro, where can people find you? You can find me sometimes on Flame On. It's a gay nerdy podcast. It's uh, nerdyshow.com slash Flame On. If you're ever in the Winter Park, Florida area, stop by a comic shop. We sell comics in a shop. And, you know, I, I bounce around. I'm a karaoke host, too. Ooh, I love karaoke. Do you have social media handles? Um, no, because I am lazy. But yes. <laughs> Do you have a favorite karaoke song to belt out? Uh, it depends. <laughs> so as for an opening number, it's either Catch Me I'm Falling by Pretty Poison or Good Morning Baltimore from Hairspray. And oh, nice. um, when I'm desperately shilling for tips, it's Private Dancer because that's <laughs> when I feel like a prostitute. <laughs> well, Oral, we hope to have you on in the near future. Thank you. This was a delight and a dream. And that's going to wrap us up this week. We'll be coming next week with the fourth episode, which is called The Traveler. Oh, that's a, kind of a mysterious name as well. And we'll find out who that traveler is. And I'm going to spoil it right now. It could be Stephen Ewan of The Walking Dead fame, or it could be Greg Kinnear of um, Stuck on You or uh, As Good As It Gets, uh, whatever a Greg Kinnear movie you, you want to film. Or John Elway too. in the 1989 Denver Broncos. Sabrina. Is that the remake with uh, Harrison Ford? Mm, yes. Yeah, Richard mm. Kimball himself. Uh, I'm not going to mention Han Solo or Indiana Jones. Anyway, <laughs> until next time, keep your eyes on the stars and your feet on the ground. And we'll be waiting here for you in the fifth dimension. Consequence Podcast Network.